is Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country. And we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers, John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home. And Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. 
The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues, here on Our American Stories. Time to cry, she was so scared. 
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Gimme Shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which he did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any, any Baylor, I'd sit there. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett. Any Okies out there? Um, and growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard. I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I, I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album, and I thought, well, I can... Most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that, that some girl down the street might like? And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything. 
from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out, you know? And, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville real quickly. Uh, I got offered a record deal. My first trip to Nashville with Arista was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away. I was a failed recording artist, and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st, and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor. But I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill cut one of my songs on the Breathe album. <laughs> I ended, <Okay>. up, <laughs> ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my, what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round <laughs> songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh... And, you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for a, a title. It's called When Jesus Takes the Wheel. And I immediately laughed. I thought, well, that's about the silliest thing I ever heard. And Hillary kind of chuckled, and we kind of tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else. What do you think? Well, let's, let's talk about <laughs> some other titles. That one, I'm not sure about that one. But fortunately, uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, we came back to uh, When Jesus Takes the Wheel and uh, wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat. Fifty miles to go when she was running low. Faith and gasoline It'd been a long, hard year She had a lot on her mind And she didn't pay attention She was going way too fast Before she knew what she was spinning On a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the wheel and take it from my hands Cause I can't do this on my own I'm letting go So give me one more chance And save me from this road I'm on Jesus, take the
And that's the first verse and chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go. She was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on tonight Jesus take the This is our American stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. This is the story of three gentlemen who had never met, all separately pursuing their life's passions until one day. Their stories converged around the trial of one of them, Barry West. I I was born in London just at the end of World War II. And we didn't have, there wasn't a lot of stuff. If you can imagine, London was pretty devastated after the war. So you had to be very practical and pragmatic. And my father certainly was very practical. And I'm very, very lucky he passed that on to me. I remember working with him when my younger sister was just three or four years old, which would have made me about 10 or 12, building her 
a doll's house and toys because we that you just couldn't buy regular toys from the shop and, and so it wasn't that we were short of money but there were just there was nothing to buy here's the second person reese cosgrove you know i was born in montreal so i'm a canadian my father was a neurologist so i was sort of introduced to the hospital at a pretty young age my father would take me in on rounds to the hospital when he had to go and I always remember we would always go on Christmas Day and I'd help deliver presents to the inpatients and they had this huge mock Santa sleigh filled with presents and you would go around to each of the floors and deliver little presents to all the inpatients. And so I, I sort of think uh, neurosurgery chose me rather than I chose neurosurgery. It just happened. And here's the third person, Maurice Ferre been fortunate enough to be in a family where there was always an importance of doing good in society, doing something good. So my great aunt was a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and she happened to be a nun. So I literally started at the ground level in, in British Telecom. We'd just come through World War II. And I remember growing up, the bad guys were the Germans and the good guys were the Americans and the Brits. And that's not true. You know, there are many, many really wonderful German people. But I did observe that everyone I could talk to, I had something in common and generally like them. I, I mean, I can count on the fingers of my hands the number of people I've met in close conversations and really detested. So I figured that anything that I could do to help people talk with one another, it's like being a doctor. I think doctors have got a great life. I mean, their calling is great. They're helping other human beings. And there are many other things that where people can do that. But for me, it was telecommunications. If you can talk to someone, you're probably going to like them. And I was recruited to become the chief technology officer for Nextel. But I ended up rolling out the first 4G network probably in the world. So I came here literally with the intent of staying two or three years. I came on an H1 visa and I thought, you know what, I really love this country, I might as well stay here. And I really have had the American dream. I had the good fortune of marrying a beautiful American. And I am an American now, and in fact, I've lived in the United States longer than I've ever lived in Canada. So I'm a rightful and dutiful American, but I always say I just came down here to improve the gene pool. I thought that my calling was in medicine, and, but my challenge was, as a kid, I was very dyslectic. And it was really tough um, to kind of get into medical school. And I fought very hard, and I ended up going to Boston University. I realized early that I was never going to be a great surgeon. And that's what I wanted to be when I went into medical school. And I realized that I wanted to have a little more liberty I wanted to have a little more control of my life and my destiny. And I had enough people around me to help me and guide me to be able to take certain risks. So in the early 90s, 
that's exactly what I did. I, I did something unheard of. I went off and did this fellowship in entrepreneurship instead of doing a residency. And I remember my dean of medicine coming up to me and saying, how does it feel being the first, first student in our medical school at Boston University that's not going into an internship? And I sat there in front of my father and my father kind of looked at me kind of dumbfounded. And I said, you know, I, this, is, this is what I want to do. And medicine was supposed to be a vocation. You're not supposed to go off and do other things. And that kind of led me down this path of creating value and doing things that I love around building and innovating around technology and medicine. So it kind of combined two things. And Maurice has built and sold two different medical companies and then became the CEO of one named Insight Tech that has helped this person he didn't know, Barry West. I picked up a cup of coffee and it just shook, I shook like a leaf and the coffee went everywhere and I was 25. Uh, and so that was the first time I really noticed the tremor and it was quite extreme. And then nothing for years and then slowly but surely it would come back a bit more. When I first came to the States, I came as the chief technology officer for Nextel and that was a high profile job involving a, a lot of stress. And I noticed things like when I was on an airplane, this country is really big. If you don't get on an airplane, you're not going to do business all over the country like we were doing. And I sat by the aisle because I didn't, passing some hot liquid across another passenger, you know, the flight attendants would just assume that you can take what they're offering and without any issue. Well, that isn't the case with someone with essential tremor. If I grab the cup by one hand or even both, there's a good chance I would spill it on my fellow passenger. So I, you know, I would go on a flight across country without having a drink because it was just not worth the risk of getting my fellow passenger scalded. The worst one, every year, I'm on this board of this company, and every year you have the annual shareholder meeting. And about four years ago, I was at a shareholder meeting and my cup just exploded. It was a paper cup, it exploded in my hand. I made it look like I tripped or something and spilt it, but it was literally my hand clenched and crushed the cup and the, and the coffee went everywhere. So that was the last time I had a coffee in public. And Reese Cosgrove is the doctor who helped him so that he can. The estimate is somewhere between 10 to 20 million uh, Americans will have essential tremor. The question is, is how many of those are really, is it bad enough for them to consider having anything done? I think that number is a lot smaller, but it's still, uh, it's the most common, it's much more common than Parkinson's disease. And you've been listening to a terrific story about three different men and how they came together living their separate and meaningful lives. And this story is a part of our Opportunity America series, sponsored by the great folks at Coke Industries. Learn more about their incredible work at cokeindustries.com 
That's K-O-C-H-Industries.com. More of this story after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Barry West, who was suffering from terrible tremors. And also the story of Reese Cosgrove and the story of Insitech CEO Maurice Ferre and his effort to start working in the world of entrepreneurship and medical innovation. Now let's return to Dr. Cosgrove and treating a condition that's known as essential tremor. So... The first-line treatment is to take a medication, typically like Indorol. That's a beta blocker. But about 30 to 40% of people, they just don't get the good effect from the medication. So the second one we would try is a drug called Mysoline, different mechanism of action, and that also works pretty well. But again, a certain percentage of people just won't see any benefit from it. Some people see benefit, but they have to go to high enough doses that they become sleepy or intolerant of the side effects. So generally, if a medicine can control the tremor, however, it's the right way to go. The side effects from the drugs for me was just um, very, very difficult. One of the drugs made me so aggressive. They're affecting your brain and your, your personality is part of the byproduct of that. I mean, I, not to the point where I was violent or, or nasty or anything like that. I would just be snappy, you know. It, it, and it's a weird feeling when you're it, like in a cloud. That's the best way I can describe it. So the morning is foggy, my brain is not sharp. I play solitaire a lot to make sure that my memory and mind functions are working well and my game level when I was on the drugs went down. Now that might sound, you know, that's not terrible, but you know, all of these things add up. Um, it just becomes, again, it's part of your life and you, and you get on with it. A common way that folks with essential tremor get on with it is self-medication through alcohol. The problem, obviously, is that alcohol works very well, but you've got to, as soon as the alcohol level drops, uh, the tremor starts coming back. So then you take another drink. So you sort of have to be drinking fairly continuously in small amounts, but over time, your nervous system and your body develops a tolerance to it, so you need a slightly higher dose to get the same benefit. And if you do this over years, you will certainly develop a tolerance and need more and more alcohol 
to suppress the tremor until you're drinking pretty constantly. So I've had a, a couple of patients who really were, frankly, alcoholic. Literally, two cocktails and the tremor's gone. And so, you know, for, for my board dinners, for instance, I would make sure that I had a scotch or gin and tonic or something before I met anybody so that I'm already halfway there and then you have a drink at the beginning and uh, so you get into a couple of drinks and then you're at dinner and there's more drinks and before you know it, not, not with the board, I've learned to contain, contain my drinking by and large to two to three drinks. Uh, but sometimes you just go beyond it. You, the reason that you're not shaking and it's because you've lost your inhibitions. And there were occasions where, and more of them than I like to admit, where I would go to dinner with some friends and go beyond the point where you're not really in control. And uh, a couple of occasions I stumbled and fell. Um, it really can become a problem. Uh, it, it wasn't with me, I don't think it was, having said that, you know, the embarrassment for Julie when I was clearly drunk uh, must have been awful for her uh, and not something I'd be proud of either. Here's Maurice on their solution to be proud of. Insight Tech developed the first incisionless surgery applications using MR-guided focused ultrasound. Yeah, the way, the way that I would describe our technology is that is it's incisionless. So you know, so what does that mean, incisionless? So what we do is we use energy, and we use a certain wavelength, and it's called ultrasound. Now most people think of ultrasound as you know looking at babies, but actually, when you converge over a thousand elements or beams of ultrasound into one point, it allows you to do something remarkable with that energy. It allows you to heat up or lesion the tissue. So think of it as a magnifying glass. And what happens is if you put your hand on a magnifying glass, like close to the, to the glass, you don't burn. But if you go right to that tip, it'll burn the leaf. And that's the exact analogy of what we do in the body, specifically in the brain. And we're able to create these lesions. And that's what's required in treating these patients with movement disorders like essential tremor. And so in years past, we would do it with a radiofrequency coagulation of it by placing a probe down there and heating it up and coagulating the tissue but that required a hole in the head and putting a rigid probe down through the skull and then generating heat at the tip of this probe to cause a lesion. A procedure called deep brain stimulation. Focused ultrasound can do exactly the same thing without having to make an incision in the scalp, a hole in the skull, or any trajectory through the brain. I just didn't really want deep brain stimulation. I would have considered it 
if my tremor had gotten worse. But this is so nice to have this option of focused ultrasound where it's an outpatient procedure. You go in over three days. The first day is just to make sure that you're in good physical condition. The second day when you have the procedure, you go in, they shave your head, they clamp your head to this frame. You spend basically half a day in and out of an MRI machine. I know some people are claustrophobic. I wasn't sure whether I was or not, but um, I didn't want to tell Dr. Cosgrove that because I wanted to have the procedure. Anyway, I found it was not difficult at all. And then the following day you go back for a checkup and, and that's it. It's done. It's just, it's a miracle. It really is because you, you come out, the effect is instant. It's interesting. My physician's assistant and my secretary and the people around, they call it, you know, this is just happy surgery. Most of our patients are older, much older. And my PA likes to say, this is the operation that makes grown men cry. Because older men, grown men and maybe grown women, were a little more cynical uh, about the world and they almost don't believe that it's possible. It sounds a little too good to be true. Well, the first thing I did after the procedure, we went to the Brigham and Women's restaurant and I had soup. I hadn't had soup for 20 years because there was just no way with Tremor that I could hold a soup spoon. And I, you know, I refused to drink soup out of straw. So I went to their, their um, restaurant and I had a bowl of soup and that night Julie and I we went out and we we just celebrated it was just amazing it's just absolutely life-changing so when we do the procedure and we stop the tremor that's one thing there's often a, a real a, the first understanding that that wow this is amazing it's the next day when they realize that it hasn't faded and gone away that that they can write their name for the first time in 10 years, or they can hold a champagne flute for the first time, or hold a, just a glass, a cup of coffee in the morning for the first time in many years, that they become somewhat emotional about it. And it's not uncommon that a grown man or a grown woman will have a little tear in their eye, in, uh, just in gratitude. And, uh, and I think the... Um, I mean, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> These types of projects that are transforming, you know, people, people think it's like an overnight success. It happens just like that. Well, no, it, it doesn't. It, it took us seven and a half years to do the first 1,000 cases. It took us 10 months to do the next 1,000 cases. And it's gonna take us five months to do the next 1,000 cases. So this is growing exponentially. We've been able across the board now to impact close to 20,000 lives. But our goal is not to get to 20,000. Our goal is to get to 200 million and have a real impact and really transforming the way that we treat certain diseases. Coke Industries, well, they're helping Maurice Foray get there. Their Coke Disruptive Technologies is the lead investor of Insitex providing $150 million worth of financial capital and priceless human capital to help expand their commercial 
and manufacturing capabilities and cut through regulatory red tape so more patients can get their innovative treatment and one that's about one quarter of the cost of invasive surgery. This story, by the way, is part of our Opportunity America series sponsored by Koch Industries. Learn more about their incredible work at kochindustries.com. That's K-O-C-H. This is Our American Stories, the story of Barry West, Dr. Reese Cosgrove, and Maurice Foray. All of those stories converging here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We recently had the chance to sit down with a Navy SEAL who would become a best-selling fiction writer by using his combat experience as his inspiration. My name is Jack Carr. I am currently an author, but before this profession, I was uh, in a different one in the SEAL teams. And I, I wanted to be a SEAL since, uh, I, almost since I can remember. And from a very early age, I was drawn towards serving my country in the military. And I think that's because I grew up around um, pretty much memories of my grandfather. He was killed in World War II off the coast of Okinawa near the end of the war. And he was a pilot, Corsair pilot, which is the plane that had the, the goal wings that would fold up uh, so you could fit a lot of them on the aircraft carriers. And two kamikazes hit the aircraft carrier uh, on May 11th, 1945, uh, and he was killed in that attack. But I grew up with the maps that they used to give aviators back then. They, were, um, they weren't paper because if you had paper maps and hit the water, they'd disintegrate. So you had these silk maps. So I had those. I had black and white pictures of him with his airplane and his squadron. I had his, uh, his uh, marine aviator wings, um, his medals, that sort of thing. So I think from a very early age, uh, that is probably the reason that I was, uh, I was drawn towards serving my country. And I didn't know exactly what I was going to do yet. But um, on the weekends, my dad would watch football on Sundays. And I had no interest in, in football. But what I did have an interest in was the war movie that they were always playing on that one outlier channel. So this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, and there was ABC, NBC, CBS, and then that one outlier channel that always seemed to be playing some sort of an old black and white war movie. And one of those was called The Frogman. And during the commercials on football, my dad would say, go. And being the remote control, I would run up to the TV, and I'd switch it to that outlier channel, and I'd have two minutes to watch whatever movie was playing. And then my dad would say, switch it back, and I'd switch it back to football and then wait for the next commercial break where I could watch a little bit more of that movie. But I found out what frogmen were from that. I asked my dad, hey, you know, who are these guys? They're crawling up over the beaches, and they're putting explosives on these obstacles in advance of these conventional force landings. And my dad said, ask your mother, I'm watching football. So I asked my mom, and she was a librarian at the time. And we went down to the local library to do research on who these frogmen were. And I found out about SEALs. And this is early 80s now, so there's hardly anything written 
about SEALs. You could read it all in about an hour. And obviously today, you type something in the search bar, put Navy SEAL in there, or special operations, or special forces, or something, and you'll have an unending supply of information that you'll never be able to get through. But back in the early 80s, you could get through all that information. And I remember that uh, my takeaways from that research with my mom were that SEALs were some of the uh, most elite fighting forces in the world, and that the training was some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So I'm about seven years old at this point, and that's when I decide that I will one day be a SEAL. But because there wasn't very much written about them, a lot of what I learned during the next 10 15 years came from the pages of fictional thrillers by guys like Tom Clancy, David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, uh, J.C. Pollock, A.J. Quinnell, Mark Olden, then Richard Marcinko. His book, Rogue Warrior, when that came out, wow, that was amazing because that was at a very, uh, uh, well, it was a very impressionable time. I knew where I was going. I'd been training for it. Um, I was still a little young. But when that book came out, that really, I mean, it showed that, hey, there was a market for these books and then a few others came out, mostly talking about uh, SEALs and Special Forces guys' experience in Vietnam. With a mom that was a librarian, I loved reading. We grew up with this love of books, a love of reading. And once again, very early on, I decided that first I would serve my country in uniform as a SEAL. And then I would transition and I would write fiction like these novels that I was enjoying growing up. Sure enough, I joined the military. Uh, I signed up to become a, become a SEAL and get to BUDS, what's called Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. Which, uh, which was that typically there's about 80% attrition there. And so I didn't pay much attention to the odds in, in any of this. I just uh, figured I'd be in that 20%. So I uh, got, to, got to SEAL training and went through that, uh, that six months of basic underwater demolition SEAL training and made it to my first team. So uh, shortly thereafter, after my first platoon, was September 11th, 2001. And that, of course, changed the trajectory of, uh, uh, well, of the country and the world but uh, sent me on a, a journey in special operations to the Chorak in Afghanistan. And now a lot of that experience is ending up in the pages of my novels. Not so much what happened there, but the feelings and emotions behind the things that happened there. I weave in to the novels, and I think that, uh, that adds a lot of authenticity to it. And if people are reading these things, even though they're fiction, and uh, say, wow, this, this reads like it's, th- these emotions sound pretty real, it's because they come from a real place. I was uh, very early on into uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu before most people knew what it was. Um, And so I just, uh, I knew I needed to learn how to fight. And uh, that came in very, very handy. Uh, Not so much the actual, actual practical application of of it, but being able to push myself in the ring or on the mat, which are uh, for people that have boxed or that have wrestled or done jujitsu. Um, those are some of the, uh, you know, the <laughs> uh, as far as endurance goes, when you're doing some sort of a, a test uh, where they put fresh people in to keep rolling with you. Uh, that's some of the hardest things that, uh, that I've, I've ever done is just be on that mat and have fresh wrestlers, fresh jujitsu practitioners come in and, uh, and keep pushing you. Um, and, you know, when I was in Buds, uh, I thought back to those times and thought back to, uh, to what it felt like to be on that mat and to never quit, to keep fighting. Um, so I thought of those things. And then I also thought of all the people from the inception of this country up until today that had given me the, the right and given me the freedom to be there on that beach in Coronado, California, uh, in SEAL training, uh, what they'd sacrificed for me to be there. I thought of the people that uh, stormed the beaches in Normandy. I thought the I thought of Iwo Jima. And I thought, you know what? 
being here getting yelled at by some big instructor in a, in a blue t-shirt that says UDT SEAL instructor on it, uh, kicking sand in my face and telling me I'm no good. Uh, you know, this, this isn't really that bad. I can, I can run this next few miles. I can do this swim. I can do this obstacle course. I can keep this boat over my head for a little while longer here uh, because this is nothing compared to what the people sacrificed who gave me the freedom to be here and gave us these, uh, this, uh, this option and this opportunity to follow our dreams. So um, I thought about all those things as I was going through training, and I think it helped me get through. And what words? You're listening to Jack Carr, Navy SEAL, also best-selling fiction writer who used his own combat experience as a backdrop for all that he writes with great authenticity. Jack Carr's story continues here on Our American Stories. We continue with Our American Stories and with Jack Carr, a Navy SEAL and a best-selling author. His book, True Believer, is one you should get at Amazon. In fact, get his others, too. Go to Amazon.com or, heck, go to a bookstore and buy a book right there in person, a real, actual book. Jack knew that he wanted to become a SEAL at a very young age when he began to read fiction novels based on the harsh realities of war. I decided to go in enlisted first and then decide if I was going to become an officer because of Rogue Warrior, because there, there wasn't much else to, to read about that sort of thing back then. And I saw that was his path. And if that was his path, I saw the way he talked about it, the way he talked about how he learned the trade as an enlisted guy and then became an officer. So I went in with that uh, with that as my plan. I wanted to essentially start in the mail room and work my way up. I wanted to learn the trade. I wanted to establish a reputation um, uh, and just uh, make sure that if I was leading guys into combat, that I wasn't going to be like all the officers that they showed in every Vietnam movie in the 80s, uh, which if you remember, they always had that brand new officer that would show up in those movies with a little butter bar on his collar and he'd show up in Vietnam and he'd uh, he'd tell the guys to get haircuts, to shave, uh, to uh, spruce up the uniforms, and then he'd lead them right into an ambush. That was like typical of 1980s of Vietnam portrayal of an officer. Uh, I'm not saying it was right all the time, but that's uh, being an impressionable, impressionable young lad. Uh, that's what I took away from both uh, Marcinko's book and from those movies. So I decided that was not going to be me if I was going to be an officer. I was going to learn this trade. I was going to uh, to learn how to, uh, how to be a tactical operator and then decide if I was going to go and become an officer, which I, which I did later. About six and a half years into it, um, I went to, uh, to OCS. But I remember being at that, I forget what they even call it, some sort of a depot or something. So you have to go get on a bus, essentially, and go to boot camp, um, uh, go to the airport and then fly to, to boot camp. Um, and I think it's similar for all the services, but you got to stay somewhere the night before. And uh, I think it was a some little hotel. And uh, oh, man, <laughs> it was awful. You're just looking around and uh, seeing what you're going to go into here. And, you know, I maybe for one split second, I was like, oh, this is horrible. But I was like, you know what? This is what you have to do. If you want to get to the SEAL teams, you have to go through regular boot camp. Uh, and it's going to be painful <laughs> because this is not what you want to do. Um, but uh, you have to do it to get 
to try out for buds and then you have to get then you have to pass that and then get to buds and that's where you want to be so it's, it's just the preliminary steps that i was like oh geez this is so painful why can't i just go right to buds um and now they've kind of fixed that actually now when you go in you go to boot camp and you go to a uh, company that is all people that are going into some sort of special specialized occupation. So I think the people going to BUDS, the people going to go EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, uh, Rescue Swimmers, I think they put them all together now. So you're going through with people that are driven, people that, uh, that want to do something a little different than the rest of the Navy. And then for the people that are going to BUDS, they keep you at boot camp for an extra couple months. And they did that because after September 11th, the government realized, hey, we need more guys uh, in special operations. How do we do that? How do we mass produce these guys? Which, of course, one of the tenets of special operations is that you cannot be mass produced. But they said, how do we get this 80% attrition level down? And what they came up with was keeping guys after boot camp and teaching them how to then get through the program, getting them up to where they need to be physically, mentally, through different um, courses on uh, on leadership and on mental toughness and on resiliency and teaching you how to climb these ropes, how to do the log PT, how to do the boat PT, uh, all these sorts of things so that by the time you show up at BUDS that you are ready to go. They teach you the stroke, the underwater recovery stroke. So all these things they didn't do um, prior to, let's say, I'm going to get the date wrong, but let's say 2005 or so. Um, so before that, it was just baptism by fire. You, show, you got to buds, and if you'd never done the underwater recovery stroke before, well, you got in the pool and you figured it out. Um, if you hadn't put a log above your head or a boat above your head, you, you kind of figured it out. You hadn't run in sand before, well, you just did it. Um, so what we found when those guys would then show up to BUDS after all that training, all those millions of dollars invested in figuring out how to reduce that, num- that attrition rate, uh, we found that we still had 80% attrition. And so we started calling them fitter quitters because really it's, uh, it's really about that mental fortitude. Uh, it's about grit and how do you teach grit without going through the crucible, without going, getting tested. So I think that's why it, uh, it, it doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in. It doesn't matter you know, what kind of courses that you had uh, on resiliency or on mental toughness. Um, you have to get out there and you have to prove yourself to both yourself and to the instructor staff at BUDS who will probably be in platoons with you uh, going downrange in the future. So they want to make sure that uh, the people they're letting through the program are people that they trust to be next to them in a firefight. So, uh, so <laughs> all, those, uh, all those millions of dollars spent uh, still, have, still have 80% attrition, give or take. But uh, I went to intelligence school and then to, to, uh, to BUDS. And then when I graduated BUDS, it was to my first SEAL team. And we all thought that as soon as you cross that quarter deck at your first SEAL team, you're going to get issued a pager. You're going to have what we call the golden Connex box was going to open up. There's going to be all this amazing gear. And then you'd be at, uh, at the bar with your platoon. And then all of a sudden the pagers would go off and you'd fly off to save the day to some exotic location and then come back in time for beers the next night. And that was not really how it was. You showed up at your first SEAL team, and this is pre-9-11, and uh, they hand you a broom, they hand you a mop, they say, okay, new guy, go clean the bathroom, go change that light bulb, go paint that wall, and you did new guy stuff. And uh, it was a, quite a shock to those of us that were expecting something different, but you know what? You adapt and you do it. And you you uh, clean that bathroom the best it's ever been cleaned and paint that wall the best it's ever been painted. Um, and then you start you learning. You, you start soaking up all that information from people that have come before. And by that time, there, were, there weren't very many Vietnam guys left. There were, there were a few. 
but uh, but not that many. So uh, those guys were passing on what they learned. We had a couple guys from Panama, a couple guys from Mogadishu. Um, so people were passing on the those lessons to to us because we hadn't been in sustained combat since Vietnam. We'd had flashpoints, um, the Army Corps Special Operations that had a uh, Desert One. Um, everybody else had had Grenada, had had uh, Panama, Mogadishu. Um, but there wasn't sustained combat. So there, wasn't, there weren't lessons learned. So essentially what we were doing, we're taking the lessons of Vietnam and we're applying them in other environments. So we're taking jungle warfare tactics and applying them in training to urban environments, uh, to mountain environments, to desert environments. And we really didn't have sustained combat again until after September 11th, 2001. And then we adapted very quickly. And there are different tactics that you use in the jungle, that you use in the mountains, that you use in the desert, that you use in urban environments. Um, so we adapted very, very quickly, and we disseminated those lessons throughout the rest of the teams and hopefully the rest of special operations and the military in general. But um, but it was, uh, it was definitely a learning curve. So my first platoon was pre-September 11th, and back then we deployed for um, presence, uh, not purpose. So we go, and essentially it's part of a, a larger package that the you know, that United States gives uh, aid to different countries around the world, and we're part of that package, and we go in and do some foreign internal defense type stuff where we just um, train, essentially, with uh, host nation forces, and it was uh, fairly mild. And you're, you're ready, of course, because you're forward deployed, and you're always hoping that something is going uh, gonna to happen where you get to go and do the job that you came in to do. But really... Your job is to be prepared to go to war. So always training, always getting better, always uh, trying to anticipate what uh, what could come so that you're ready. And that didn't really happen until after September 11th. And I was deployed at the time. I was in uh, I was in Guam. And I think it was the second week of our deployment, and it was about midnight over there. And people start knocking on doors up and down the hallway of the barracks. And we go downstairs and we watch the Twin Towers fall on TV on the the one uh, one television that we had in the barracks. So after that, we knew things had changed, and it was uh, that that well. It was obviously some things changed for the country and the world, but it took a little while to get our act together. And not many people had heard of Al Qaeda. Not many people knew what it meant. The base uh, I happened to be an intel rep, and I happened to be studying this sort of thing my whole life to prepare me for for what I was doing. So I'd read a lot of nonfiction stuff. I'd read a lot about terrorism, a lot about insurgencies, uh, a lot about warfare in general, just to make myself the best seal I could possibly be. So, uh, so I got to start briefing some senior level people on, on what my perspective on what had happened and who had done it and all that sort of thing. And we all thought we were going to jump on planes and head right to Afghanistan, but it took a little while, it took a little while to, to organize. And so it took, let's say a few days to get us maybe a week or so and planes landed, we got on and off we went. We all thought we were going to go right into Afghanistan, but, uh, what we did, my platoon in particular, we took over shipboarding operations in Northern Arabian Gulf and the platoon that was doing that from SEAL Team 3, then went into Afghanistan. So it took me about another uh, year and a half to get there. And uh, 2003 was really my first um, experience uh, in Afghanistan. And then later on, three more Iraq deployments. But um, it was uh, from then on, it was a full-on sprint. And from then on, we were really doing what we all thought we would be doing kind of in secret when we first showed up at our teams before September 11th. Well, now after September 11th, we were actually doing the job. And you're listening to Jack Carr, Navy SEAL, best-selling author. And my goodness, something really struck out when he was in peacetime before 9-11. He said, we were hoping something would happen. 
because he wanted to do what he'd been prepared to do to go into battle, hoping something would happen. Jack Carr's story continues here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and Navy SEAL Jack Carr's story. He's the author of True Believer, a sequel to his first fiction novel, The Terminal List. Jack became an author as part of his transition back into civilian life after serving in combat for his country. He has some great advice for anyone who's about to leave the military. A lot of people have trouble with transitioning. Well, just like transitioning out of anything in life and into something new. My experience happens to be out of special operations and into the private sector. So that's what I observed before I got out. I saw people that had a tough time doing that um, because they hadn't found their next mission in life. They didn't know their next purpose. And a lot of them tried to recreate what they had in the SEAL teams uh, in the private sector. Because uh, you're there in the SEAL teams, you're there for, for the team. You're there for the guy to your right and left. Uh, more broadly, you're there for the mission in the country. But when you try to, when I saw people try to replicate that in the private sector, um, they met with, let's say, not uh, not the best results. Um, and it's hard to let go of something that is so primal, so visceral, um, and so team oriented at such a high level. And you see it with elite athletes all the time. You see people that try to leave the NFL, the NBA. Um, uh, you see uh, Olympic athletes that uh, that have been so focused on one event for their entire life. And then they're not in that event anymore. And they're transitioning out to do something else. And it's they're not ready for it. They haven't found that next mission. They haven't found that purpose. So very similar in special operations. So I was fortunate in that my last couple of years in the military, I was not taking guys downrange anymore. I'd worked my way to a rank where uh, my last deployment to Iraq as a lieutenant commander, which is a major in the other services, uh, that'd be the last time that I'd really um, work tactically on the battlefield. Going forward, when you hear that someone is a commanding officer of a team or of something else, um, these days, it, that does not mean that you're leading from the front and out there with the guys. In fact, the guys don't want you <laughs> out there because you are now part of the bureaucracy and you're much more useful, actually, um, not out there with them because you haven't been training up with them. You don't know the standard operating procedures. Um, and you're, you're much more useful, actually, back in the tactical operations center. So that was my my future. And that's not why I came in. Um, we also had a family situation in that we have a middle child that is uh, severe, has severe special needs and he needs uh, 24-7 full-time care forever. And while I was downrange for my last couple of deployments, uh, my wife handled all of that. And you know, cause when you're in special operations or in something like this, you have to be solely focused on the team, especially as a leader. You have, that pendulum has to be all the way on the side of the team and on the mission, because that's what you owe the guys under your command. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the, the country. Um, but when I got back from that deployment and went to my first uh, real shore duty, I guess, um, I could take a breath. 
and I could look at how much time I had left in the military, which was just a couple of years, and I could say, okay, uh, it's time to make a transition. My family needs me, um, and I've, I've done pretty much everything that I came in to, to do, uh, and it's time to pass the torch to the next generation. It was very clear to me that it was time to move on, but I was very fortunate that I had that time to reflect and take a breath. A lot of guys come back from a deployment, and a month later, they're out of the military. Uh, two months later, they're out of the military. Three months later, they're out of the military. They haven't had a chance, really, to take a breath and think about what they're going to do next in a, in a realistic type way. They haven't had a chance to get out there and maybe do some sort of an internship in another profession, for a little, or maybe multiple internships in another profession, so they can really find out if that's a path that they want to take. And I think that's very beneficial for people coming out of the military is to, to do that sort of thing. Um, but getting back on track, I had a chance to take a breath. We were essentially handed our next mission in life, which was taking care of our, our middle child. And I knew what I wanted to do next as a profession because I wanted to do it for so long. It was time to write. And uh, I didn't think about the odds, just like I didn't think about the odds of making it through buds or uh, becoming a seal or any of that sort of thing. I didn't think about the odds of getting a, a book published. I just knew that um, I've done the military side now, and now it's time to take a breath, take care of my family, transition, and write fiction. And of course, it's gonna, I'm just going to write it, and it's going to get uh, sent to New York, and it's going to get picked up by, uh, by Simon & Schuster, and that's going to get optioned for a movie, and then blah, 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 blah. And that's just, that's the attitude I took. And that's about all the thought I gave to, uh, to that, that next, uh, that next step. I didn't think, oh man, man, what if I don't make it? What if, uh, what if no one likes this novel? What if I can't get, I didn't even know I needed an agent at the time. I have one now, but didn't know back then. Um, and I didn't spend any time thinking about, uh, the failure piece. Didn't spend any time thinking about, uh, if it wouldn't, didn't work out or, oh man, the odds are against me. The odds of getting something published are slim. So I thought all that was wasted bandwidth. Um, and all I did was focus on making that transition, on writing the best book that I possibly could, and uh, and move and moving forward. So uh, I was fortunate that I could do that. A lot of people don't know their next mission in life. They don't even know what they're passionate about, other than being in the SEAL teams, being in special operations. So it's very difficult for people to make that transition just because they've been so focused on, uh, on the job at hand or the task at hand, uh, going down range, going to Iraq, going to Afghanistan, coming home, doing another workup where you're away from home. Also, you're going to doing desert warfare training for a month and you're going to do some mountain stuff for two weeks and you're jumping out of planes for a couple of weeks and you're diving for a couple of weeks. So even when you're home, between deployments, you're still with your platoon. You're still focused on where you're going next and on that upcoming deployment. And then you go downrange. And when you're downrange, you're not thinking about changing diapers at home. You're not thinking about the leaky roof. You're not thinking about paying bills. You are only thinking about that target package, that next target, uh, that next mission. Um, and that's uh, fairly unique, I think, in the world today. But uh, then when you make that transition and you realize that now you have to worry about bills and you have this thing called the family at home and you have to worry about that leaky roof and you have to figure out what you're going to do next and you have to find that next mission in life so that you're not just wandering aimlessly and you're not making your family miserable because you are. Um, so there's a lot for, for guys to juggle. But most importantly, I think, is one making that decision and then stick and then sticking with it. And a lot of guys get out for a little bit and then they come back. They come back to the SEAL teams or they come back in the military because they don't uh, like it on the outside or they couldn't find that next mission. Um, so for me, making that clear, that clean break 
with the military was important. And uh, I made it psychologically and I made it physically. So I didn't stay in the same town. I didn't stay in Coronado, California. We picked up and we moved to the mountains because we wanted to raise our kids in a, in a ski town. And I think that was beneficial as well, because if you stay in the same towns, you stay in Virginia Beach, you stay in Coronado, California, you stay in and around Fort Bragg, North Carolina, then you're seeing the same people. You're uh, get kid drop off at school. You say, oh, hey, how's, uh, how's so-and-so doing? Is the other guy getting ready for deployment? Uh, you're going to the same bars, going to the same grocery stores, running into the same people. Uh, and it just makes it harder, I think, to move on. So uh, I recognize that because I saw it firsthand as I was getting ready to transition. So, so we picked up and, and made that physical and psychological break with the military. I do think that during those last that last year, maybe that last year and a half, where in the military, your job becomes to get out of the military. Uh, hopefully you have that time. And some guys don't. Some guys just have those uh, that month when they get back from deployment. But if you're at a command where you can possibly take the time to go through that transition process, the military transition side is awful. It's terrible. But what it does do is give you time. And though you have to sit in on some silly classes, you have to wait in all these sorts of lines and, and do VA stuff and go to dental and get things signed and turn gear in and whatever else you need to do. Um, it's a huge checklist to uh, remove yourself, extract yourself from this gigantic bureaucracy. But what that gives you is time to think and not just time to think, but time to explore other options out there. If you can intern in a few different places that that you are interested in, a few different industries, a few different companies, uh, then it helps you make a more informed decision. And I think it helps you meet, makes you more effective and efficient uh, as you transition and search for what you're going to do next, if you need to search. Um, but uh, finding that next mission, finding that, that next purpose uh, above all else is what's important. Finding that next mission, finding that next purpose. And it's no duck walk, I'm sure, but no better and finer words have been said about the experience. He's walked the walk, he's talking the talk. We're talking about Jack Carr, Navy SEAL, talking about transition, his own personal transition to writer. All of that comes next. Again, Jack Carr's story here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of Navy SEAL Jack Carr, author of the best-selling novels The Terminalist and also True Believer. We now learn about the protagonist in this series, which is based on the life experiences of the author. James Reese is a prior enlisted Navy SEAL sniper, and he becomes an officer at some point along the way. And when we meet him in The Terminalist in the first novel, he's at that stage that I was at when I got back from my last deployment and made the decision to get out of the military. So he's at that stage as well. He is, he's made the decision that it's time for him to, to get out. He's, at, he's uh, worked himself to that rank where he won't be tactically leading guys on the battlefield anymore. 
and it's time for him to uh, take care of his family. So that's where we meet James Reese in the first novel. And of course, that's when disaster strikes. And part of that disaster was inspired by the church hearings in the 70s. Frank Church of, of Idaho uh, chaired a series of hearings on the abuse of power by certain elements of the federal government. And one of the things discussed in those hearings was testing of uh, on human subjects on people in the military, on uh, university students, on people at mental uh, mental hospitals, that sort of thing. And what came out of those hearings, those hearings were some safeguards against that ever happening again. And I thought, you know what? A lot of time has passed between the the mid to late seventies and today. And what if somebody didn't get? that memo? And what if a government and private sector entity needed to test a certain drug on our nation's most elite warriors? So I needed the protagonist to really go into battle thinking he was already dead. And I got that from studying Bushido, the Code of the Samurai. And they would go into battle thinking they were already dead because they thought that made them more effective and efficient warriors. And I thought, you know what? In a lot of these movies I see, they always say that the, the hero has nothing left to lose. And every time they say that, I say, well, he's got something left to lose. He could die. Uh, so I said, how do I take that away from him? How do I take life away from him? And that's where the conspiracy comes in. And that uh, James Reese, after something that happens to his troop in Afghanistan and his family on the home front, now goes into battle thinking he's already dead. He unravels a conspiracy. And you can read this at a few different levels. It can be just a, you know, a fun escape and uh, or it can be about someone who takes the tactics and techniques of the enemy that worked so well against us in Iraq and Afghanistan and bring it, brings those to the home front. And a little deeper, it's really about a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan who comes home and brings that war home to people in uh, Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia who have been sending young men and women to their deaths now for creeping up on 20 years. So uh, he brings that war home to them. So you can read it a, at a few a few different levels. But uh, And for me, it ended up being a very therapeutic process to write about these things in a fictional sense. And, uh, and it, uh, it worked out. It resonated with uh, the publisher at Simon & Schuster and has been resonating with readers. And I think that's because even though it is fiction, it, it is deeply personal. And the emotions and feelings behind what the protagonist uh, is going through come from a real place. My second novel is called True Believer, and it was inspired by something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006 when I was working with a, a covert action unit, and we had, meaning we were working with uh, host nation uh, people, and a lot of them have a hard time to, uh, when things when the plan does not go according to plan, because in a lot of these places where we operate, you are not rewarded for taking risk. In fact, if you uh, if you take risk and it doesn't work out uh, in the past, you uh, essentially it's kind of off with your head type thing. It's not going to help you out. So when it's better to make no decision whatsoever than to make a decision and have things go south and then learn from that, pass those lessons on like we do in the U.S. military. Well, other militaries, it's not quite the same way. So we had this standout uh, Iraqi, and he was an amazing guy, and he was he was personable. He had great English. He could make decisions under fire. He could adapt on the fly. And years later, I got word that he disappeared. And I thought, you know what? What if I was to make this a lot more interesting and have him reappear 
in Europe, disgruntled with the fact that the U.S. left at the end of 2011 and abandoned him and his family. And now he's taking those skills that he learned from the U.S. intelligence services and from U.S. special operations and now is using those skills against the Western world as a terrorist. And that's where the action really kicks off in True Believer in that uh, the protagonist of the story, James Reese, uh, now needs to go track down his former friend that he worked with in Iraq uh, and uh, track him down and and kill him. But essentially, that, uh, of course, there's conspiracy involved and that things are not always what they seem, especially in these kind of novels. So uh, from there, the uh, the reader will go on a, on a ride, uh, on a thrilling ride, and uh, and hopefully enjoy enjoy it. I'm going to read a portion here that uh, it's fairly short, but it's something that I would read to my guys in the SEAL teams. And what it does is frame the enemy, frame what we were going up against as we went through our workup, getting ready to deploy, and then move downrange on deployment. And it's attributed to a, an unidentified U.S. Army Special Operations Instructor at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, date unknown. So uh, it's after September 11th sometime, but I'm not sure exactly when, and I don't know who exactly said this, but this frames the novel and it frames what we would, I would read to the guys as we got ready to, to, um, to train up to go downrange. And this is it. It says, somewhere a true believer is training to kill you. He is training with minimum food or water in austere conditions, day and night. The only thing clean on him is his weapon, and he made his web gear. He doesn't worry about what workout to do. His ruck weighs what it weighs. His runs end when the enemy stops chasing him. The true believer doesn't care how hard it is. He only knows that he wins or he dies. He doesn't go home at 1700. He is home. He knows only the cause. This is a novel of redemption. True Believer explores the psyche of a man who has killed for his country and broken society's most sacred bond in a quest for vengeance. Can this man, who transformed into the very insurgent he'd been fighting, find peace and purpose and learn to live again? These are not unlike the questions facing veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as they prepare to leave military service. Can they find purpose in their lives? Can they identify the next mission? And can it be productive, positive, and inspiring to those around them? The issues surrounding transitioning veterans are numerous and complex. Constant deployment since 9-11, vampire hours overseas, operating at night, grabbing a few precious hours of sleep during day, survivors, survivor's guilt born of dead friends and teammates, life-altering physical wounds, traumatic brain injury, and post-traumatic stress. These factors combine with sleep aid dependency, excessive alcohol use, and marital problems to form a caustic cocktail from which it is difficult to recover. For those who have lived their lives in a constant state of hypervigilance, as our DNA dictates is necessary to survive and prevail at the tip of the spear, identifying a new mission in a post-military life can be a daunting task. The team is family. The team is purpose. The team is home. Returning to spouses, children, diaper, soccer practices, and leaky roofs can sometimes pale in comparison to the adrenaline focus of planning and executing an operation to capture or kill a high-value individual downrange. You've topped off magazines, replaced batteries in nods, weapon-mounted lights and lasers, gassed up vehicles, studied the target's pattern of life, target area, and the routes to and from the objective. You've gone over every contingency you can think of, 
Air assets will be overhead as elements of the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force observe via a video downlink from a Predator UAV or AC-130 gunship. A quick reaction force is standing by to provide reinforcements if necessary. Your mind is focused. Your team is ready, just waiting for the trigger to execute. You are part of the most experienced, effective, and efficient special operations manhunting machine ever assembled. Replicating that life in the private sector is an exercise in futility. The operator's search for the sensations of the battlefield on the home front can manifest in unproductive and unhealthy endeavors. A new mission with constructive purpose is necessary, one that fulfills the quest to be part of something greater than oneself. The old life will always be a part of us, but we need to move forward. Although it certainly informs my writing, I am not a frogman anymore. Instead, I explore the feelings associated with my time in combat on the pages of my political thrillers. It is my hope that these real-world experiences add depth, perspective, and authenticity to the story. Serving my country as a Navy SEAL was something I did, past tense. I've turned my, in my M4 and sniper rifle for a laptop and a library as I fulfill my lifelong dream of writing novels. In the pages of True Believer, I examine a similar transition for my protagonist, James Reese. Feeling responsible for the deaths of his family and teammates, betrayed by the country to which he pledged his allegiance and sacred honor, what could possibly give him purpose? What mission could make him want to live again? These issues are the same ones confronting those who have fought in the mountains of the Hindu Kush and along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates in the cradle of civilization, and though explored through the medium of a fictional narrative, are no less valid. We are the accumulation of our past experiences. How we channel those experiences and knowledge into wisdom as we move forward is critical. What's past is prologue. Written by William Shakespeare in The Tempest, it is also inscribed on a monument outside the National Archives in Washington, D.C. How true that is. And we've been listening to Jack Carr and what a writer and what a storyteller. Former Navy SEAL and author of two books, True Believer and The Terminalist. Get them both, read them in sequence. And my goodness, talking about these transitions for our soldiers, survivor's guilt, trauma, wounds, real and psychological, and of course, alcohol, marital problems. It's, well, we know the stories. And my goodness, he knows them too. And how to move past that sense of purpose, that that family, that home that they'd found as a SEAL, as a warrior, and finding a new home and transitioning from one life to the next and finding meaning and purpose. What a thing to write about and what a story to tell. Jack Carr's story here on Our American Stories.